Hi, I'm Diana Hullett, and welcome to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. I'm here today for part two with special guest Kim Mooney. She's the founder of Practically Dying. She's a TV and radio show host and author. Kim is a great educator on end-of-life issues, and in this episode, we talk extensively about palliative sedation, voluntary stopping of eating and drinking, and made medical aid in dying. So listen in to learn more about these topics. So, hey, Kim, let's go on with our part two. Okay. In part one, we talked a lot about, um, well, gosh, all kinds of things, how we die, palliative care, hospice. Let's pick up there. Okay. So um, when you're in hospice care, so we're going to talk about three major things here, actually two major ones, but when you're in hospice care, the assumption is that you're going to just die. And that's what happens with most people. As their body starts to die, hospice adjusts meds. They, you know, one thing I forgot to say is sometimes people come into hospice, they get taken off of all these meds that aren't working anymore. Their spirits lift, their body works better, and they last longer than they should have. So you, your body dies when it's ready to die for the most part. Um, and so what they do is they adjust care, they adjust touch, they adjust you know, they educate the family along the way. And for most people, all of that stuff just accompanies you until your body lets go, which can be surprising. Again, uh, people live a lot longer than you think. One man who was laying had been in a coma for uh, days and his family did crossword puzzles together and they were doing crossword puzzles across the bed. And he opened his eyes and gave them the answer and put his eyes laid down again and died an hour and a half later. There are things like that that are really wonderful, and there are people who make it until their daughter shows up from Oregon, and there are people who don't. Right. And so, you know, we, we never know. So that's the mystery of that end. Sometimes along the way, people say, I can't stand this anymore. I don't want to be in this dying process. And this is where we've seen a lot of religious resistance, but God put you in that body, and you have to stay there till God's ready to let you out. Well, I heard a doctor say one time, well, then are we playing God when we put somebody on life support? Aren't we playing God? Nobody likes that answer. Well, I do. Um, so there are times where people are just having too much trouble, um, not being able to breathe, not being able to swallow, pain management. And so they'll address what they call palliative sedation. So there's the word palliative, comfort again. And what that really means is, we want you, I want to be sedated to the point where my body's going to go through this process, but I don't have to be present to it. Now, we've seen this happen with Vietnam vets, people who have just gone through horrific processes. Um, and this is a huge ethical concern. So hospices, when, when this is brought up, will sit down and talk about it for the benefit of themselves, for the families, for the patients. And if it's okay, what they'll do is they'll just sedate to the point where the person isn't conscious. It doesn't really, it doesn't kill them. Although this is where a really important ethical concept comes in. It's the principle of double effect. So if I give you medication to sedate you to the point where you are comfortable and you accidentally die, am I liable for that? And if the intention is not to, then no, you're not liable. But man, it's a tricky line because your body's dying anyway, but it wasn't going to. But how do you know? You know, so it it kind of teeter-totters in that mystery, but it's a really important one that gets considered when we medicate people to unconsciousness. Okay? So that's really important because that's a choice. I don't want to be here for this. Um, I can't do it. 
whatever. And and it's easy from the outside to say, well, yeah, you can. This is again where we get into things. But do how much choice do we want to give people? I think as much as we do about they can make stupid decisions when they're alive. We have to respect the kind of decisions they make, whether we agree with them or not when they're dying. So palliative sedation is one totally within hospice's purview. Most of them know how to do it skillfully. Um, and that's an important one. The second one that is completely legal again, it's that, and so each one of these, honestly, Diane, used to be the cutting edge, controversial, sexy, horrible palliative sedation. When it came out, it was like, no, you can't do that. And then people started really addressing dying with voluntary stopping eating and drinking, which is shortened to VSED. And that is, again, a patient right to be able to say, I'm done. You can't force feed me. And there's often misunderstood artificial nutrition and hydration, which is still receiving nutrients, not food and water. It doesn't taste like turkey going in your veins, you know. But those, what are you doing to keep a body alive? Well, what keeps the body alive is mostly fluids. So when people say, I'm going to stop eating and drinking, and people have done it, this is like what goes on in a fast. When someone fasts to death, you're basically saying, I'm going to, I'm going to starve my body. And that's the true word, but boy, you say that to somebody with an attitude and they're going to not want to do that with mom. It's huge. Um, It's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the dicey points, again, is that some people, some hospices will accept people who are coming in who have already stopped eating and drinking because they meet the criteria of a dying person. And other hospices will say, yeah, you weren't dying before. Well, okay, ethical concerns. But the process, as he said, for a dying body is pretty easy because the body's already not wanting to eat or drink. And if you put fluids in a body that doesn't want, that's not kidneys aren't functioning and legs swell up, it's it's very painful. So that's one thing. If you let someone alone long enough, their body will stop doing that. Yeah. Right. Right. And I've certainly, I've read a lot about VSED and seen some really interesting brief documentaries about it. Um, and, and I, I know that it, it, what I hear is it is important to have it supported, either physician supported or hospice supported. And that you, you kind of want to know that ahead of time. Like, what is that support system? This doesn't mean you just sort of um, quit eating and drinking and announce it to your sweetheart and stop. It, it, it is a process that will take the body to death. But it is fascinating to me that it is a legitimate way to say, I'm done. Mm -hmm. And not everybody realizes that they have that in their power. You know, they say, oh, well, I've got to get a physician assisted um, death. Well, you you don't. You do have this in your power. And I think Mm -hmm. some people um, make that choice, but it's not a simple choice. I think that's the important thing to know that you can learn and educate yourself about it. yeah, so VSED or terminal fast is a really interesting piece that I wonder if we'll see more of. Uh, well, I don't know. You know, I think that I think you brought up a really good point. Medical aid and dying isn't the only way, and a, a really skilled clinician will be talking to everybody about both of these things because some of them, some people are not. It's not right for them. You know, you have to know their history. You have to know, like again, you know, people who've been in war who maybe were starved and in camps, they're not going to want to necessarily use this. Right. So um, I think what's important to know is, like you said, it is a process. It takes time. The One of the benefits is you can change your mind up to a certain point. You know, you can, and some people do. They start and then they stop again. Stopping eating is not 
that hard comparatively. It's the fluids. And you can, with a little tiny bit of water, your body will hang on for a week, two weeks. And yeah. really different. We've had really old, sick people have been around a lot longer than they thought, you know, statistically, scientifically. But it is a process of that is not necessarily pleasant. I think everybody dying, um, and I'm not saying across the board, but when it's hard, you're going to want meds at the end for uh, delusional, you know, for things that are really uncomfortable. And then hospice, the other kinds of things it does that we don't think about are um, the, the nurse calls the coroner for you, calls it in. And that's huge because the last thing you want is the coroner showing up with red lights, you know, flickering because they don't know they could be a suspicious death. So there's the cradle of hospice does all the things that may need to come up if it's uncomfortable, you know, medical care, but also support for the family because that's a, that's a big process. So yes, that's one of the ways that, that maybe some people want that. They don't want to use medical aid and dying. I mean, think about it just personally. You're going to have your own attitudes and your own fears and things like that. So said is not used as often as you would think. Um, and it does have to be, I mean, I have to tell you, Diane, it is so easy to just want a little too much water. Yeah, you know? as you said, just a little. I, I, I know one book I read is um, by a woman named Phyllis Schachter, and her husband had um, early onset of Alzheimer's. And he was aware and he absolutely made this choice and they made this plan together. And he came up with a, a, a time that he would know. He basically, they did an activity that they enjoyed together in a community. And he said, when I can no longer go to that and enjoy that, that is how I will know that the time is upon us. And so um, they had arranged a physician to be available and they, they, you know, there was about a year's worth of planning that went into this, but yeah. she did talk about how, when he had settled on this, there was a certain quality of, of settledness. Like he felt like he could, um, end his body's, uh, you know, end living in a body and end the torment of his mind that he didn't want to go further into Mm -hmm. by his choice. And that was really important to him. So th there are interesting resources out there, I think, if people want to learn more. Mm -hmm. So then the third one, you want you want to talk about palliative sedation, mm -hmm. voluntary stopping of eating and drinking, and third, medical aid and dying. Um, and I think I want to just mention what you said is the most important out of all of these choices, what's the most important for us is to have control at the end of our lives. Everything is built around, can we manage it? Do we get our way? And that's where we're seeing, especially since the boomers, the most beautiful, selfish generation that has ever come along, we want our way. You know, so everything from customized coffins to making sure that we get these choices. So medical aid and dying was originally called physician-assisted suicide language, okay? Um, there are 10 states that it's legal in. It started in Oregon quite a while ago. And Almost all the laws in this country have the same bones, and they are, again, culturally bit. So you have to be an adult. You have to have the dreaded six-month diagnosis. Um, you have to have competency. And here again, with VSED and with medical aid and dying, you have to have capacity. You can't. And that's what's scary about both of them. If someone loses capacity halfway, they're going to stop you, you know? Okay, right. so you have to have capacity. Um, you have to be resident in Colorado. 
probably the biggest thing is that you have to be able to self-administer. And this has been the biggest issue. That means you have to be able to put it in your mouth. If you don't, if you, if a doctor does that for you, it's considered euthanasia, which is illegal in this country. Not in Canada. They have the choice. You want to take it yourself, you want your doctor to do it. A completely different cultural way to look at it. Okay, so those are the things. Now we have 10 states, I think, 10 states and Washington, D.C., I think, that have legalized this. So 22% of the population it's available to, because these are high population states. But even in Colorado, we've had the law since 2016 started. One of the things that happened to us is we passed the law. I can't remember, it was January, February when it started. But we passed it, and then it went into effect really quickly. So we weren't ready. Okay, we really weren't ready. Um, so we have an odd, we have a, I'll tell you more about our state. So to be eligible, you have to be, well, I just told you, you have to be an adult. You have to have a terminal, terminal diagnosis. Um, you have to um, have competency. You have to be a resident. And um, you have to be able to self-administer. If all those things are true, then you start the process to become qualified. And that process means that over the 15 days, because they want to make sure you're not having a bad hair day, you have to have one written request. You have to have two oral requests set apart. So they just make sure. This is one of the safeguards. There's a lot of safeguards in there. If you listen to the opposition, they'll say there aren't enough safeguards and that you know people are going to be uh, involuntarily killed. No written, no no um, reported cases of that, although I'm sure there's stuff that goes on. Um, so then you get the doctor, you have a uh, attending doctor who says basically, Diane, you're dying. Okay, is this something that you really want? They run you through, they make sure that you have mental capacity, check you out, talk to you about it. And then they have to have a consulting doc who also comes in and says, yeah, she is terminally ill. I agree with that. Her, she's got her, her, you know, her heads together. They, either one of them can say, I'm not sure. I want a mental health eval. And if that's true, then a third doctor comes in, psychiatrist comes in and has to do an eval to make sure that you're there. Now, in other states, there's a little deviation. In Hawaii, when they passed our law, said mandatory mental health. Okay, so we've got a little variation, but these are the bones in all the states. Some of the reporting requirements are different. It plays out a little bit. The states that have had the law longer have had a chance to see how it works and make some amendments. We haven't yet. So we're six years into it. Um, we have bad, I think, poor reporting requirements. We only have to report, the doctors only have to report, I've, I've signed a prescription, and the pharmacist has to say the prescription's filled. But beyond that, we can't really track who really used it. How many people who died who had it didn't use it? You know, that kind of thing. Right, so, that's very interesting at a really big picture level. How do we track it so that we know what's happening and can and can understand it as a as a you know as advocacy and as legislatures and as a community, um, mm -hmm. not not out of some morbid fascination, but like to make sense of it. Is it working? Are people using it? Are they not? Are they filling the prescription and not dying from it? As you said, yeah. yeah. And it tends that the population, the two statistics that we quote all the time are that the majority of people who use this are educated white upper middle class people. So it's privileged. You know, who can get to it? Who can get to the doctor? Who trusts their doctor? Whose doctor is going to be, you know, sophisticated enough to support it? 
that's one thing. And in Colorado, we live in a state that has a spine of educated towns and a lot of rural people out there. We have much less medical aid and dying support on the western slope because it's more conservative. And who knows what's happening between here and Nebraska. So, you know, the other piece of getting good information is we'd be able to say, here's how we expand our reach. Here's the best way. One of the things, yeah, about some of the national organizations are really putting time into looking at how you reach different populations. You know, clearly, without stereotyping, and if you're looking at Latino populations, you may very well be talking to priests, to churches, the places where they tend to have their leaders, you know, the leaders. So, so there are a couple issues around how the data collection isn't working. Luckily, the clinicians in this state are asking for it. And that means that there's investment. You know, we want to know what's working, what's not. UCH did a beautiful study last year asking physicians, were you, are you okay prescribing? We still don't know. We've got docs who are willing to consult, but they don't want to be the one prescribing. So the steps are really lunky and they're in, in uh, silos. You have to have a doctor, a consulting, and there are some health systems now where you can pretty much get everything at the same place. But in the beginning, doctor, consulting, and then you have to find a pharmacist because this is a compounded med, a, a gazillion times more powerful than Superman. You know, I mean, it's really brutal. And what, is it, what is it that happens? You drink it and your heart stops? Is that essentially Yeah, what? And, I, and please don't ask me for the, the components, but basically yeah, no. when, it's, when we first got it and around the country, there was one drug that everybody used. I think it was Stekanol. And it was expensive. It was fine. And everybody used it. And you had to like uncap 98 capsules to get to it. And then it was bought by a company in Canada who didn't agree with the, the principles. And they raised the price to like $5,000. So this really sophisticated group of doctors started saying, let's come up with our own cocktails. So they have meds now. They have a very nice medley that one stops the heart. One, you know, this pain meds. I mean, it's a, it's a caps, it's an encapsulated formula. And then about a half an hour before that, you actually are prepared for it. You drink something that stops you from throwing up. So you're making sure. And doctors who are doing this and pharmacists, people who are helping are really specific. Okay, what kind of illness do you have? Do you have a digestive illness that's going to prevent you? Then maybe we should look at a rectal, right. you know, application. And in the beginning, I think people were just, thinking, I've got to put it in my mouth. And now we're looking at how can we help people with ALS if they can just push with one finger. Right. So we're looking, we've gotten a lot more sophisticated at how we help people who are more disabled. Once again, as I said, people with dementia, with this and VSED, the, the hard part is they have to make a decision to give up some life that could still be good to make sure they do this early enough that they don't lose capacity. So huge, right? So yeah. it's sort of, it really, it made in Colorado works for people with a terminal cancer diagnosis, maybe, or some other things, Anything. but Anything. ALS gets a little tricky in terms of the self-administration and dementia, Alzheimer's gets tricky in terms of the mental capacity to be choosing. Right. And our mental, what we've decided, yes, those are both true things. And those are sticky wickets because if your family member helps you with it, they can be charged with murder. Okay. So, and those are issues all around the country. It's a self-administering thing. 
it's been a big issue also because you can put in your advanced care planning, look, if I don't have capacity, you know, then I want to die. Well, we can't proactively legally do that. But if you don't have capacity, you can say to your healthcare agent, don't let them feed me. So th there's good and bad to that. There's, so. this, is, this is jumping back slightly, but I have heard that this is a complicating factor at some assisted living places. Mm -hmm. If you're in an assisted living place, I'm not sure that you have quite as much control, do you, over whether they want to insist that you eat. And I love what Barbara Carnes says, you know, Barbara Carnes, great educator. She says, you know, of course, people want to eat at the end of life. They want to eat for you. They want to eat for those who are alive. They want to make you happy, but the body doesn't want to eat um, when it's going through a dying process. And so V said just amplifies that and how that's supported depends in part on where you live. And I will, yeah, I'll just keep breaking apart. Some people want to eat. Some families are all over this and they know, they know that that food is not going to work well. Some people want to eat a bite. I mean, sometimes, you know, my mother's last meal was one blackberry and one spoonful of soup. And my mother, oh, my mother-in-law, oh, bless her heart. She, uh, we gave her a little bit of um, cheese, a little tiny bit of shredded cheese. And we said, what else do you want? And she said, what's cheese without a little wine? And so her last meal was one bite of really good cheese and one sip of amazing wine. So, you know, it's, again, very, very personal. The problem that comes up, and this is, again, the way we're set up legally and culturally and regulatorily, and that's why hospice gets dinged so much. And there are bad hospices. I'm not saying there aren't. But, but everybody's so regulatory driven. So nursing homes, their regulations are designed to make sure that old, frail people or sick, frail people get cared for. So they have regs around making sure they have people come in and check. Did you eat in your room? Did you show up at the nurse, you know, at the table? If you're in hospice, that doesn't apply. Okay. It's still tricky because you may have people coming in from the nursing home. You have that staff coming in who wants to take care of you. But when you're in a home like that, they have, um, they have regulations around it. And they also have their own culture. Over 50% of the healthcare hospital systems in this country are Catholic or religious. So we see problems with that influence. Um, and in some of the care facilities too, we see the influence of their culture, <clears throat> what they think is acceptable. So there are people who've wanted to use medical aid and dying who've had to move out. They've had to leave their home at the last minute and find another place to live to self-administer this. Now, in real life, I can do this and not tell my wife my husband. I have a husband and a dog. I don't even have to tell my dog. Um, it's totally private. So I also know that what people do in care facilities is they don't tell anybody. And if they're in hospice and they die, that's what happened. So I know that that happens. And, you know, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's complicated. There's ethics involved in being honest with the facility. And, but, I, you know, everything happens. And really, Powerful things happen that are all under the table. Uh, so in hospice, many places around the country, hospices have opted not to be directly involved because for reasons that we don't need to get into there, it appears as though they will lose their Medicare dollars, which they can't afford to do. Medicare can shut a hospice down in three months by withholding pain. Um, <clears throat> so most hospices will support a family, but they will not prescribe. 
or they won't, you know, dole out the medicine, but right. they will be around the edges. So the same thing happens to them. They have people come in who are going to use medical aid and dying and they can provide support. Sometimes they'll let their staff be in the house. Sometimes they'll let their staff one hospice. They made them go sit in the car for 90 seconds because they're worried about liability. You know, right. and that's it's sad because the hospice staff goes into moral distress because they want to be there for their patients. So there's still this all over the place. When, how, who, you know, am I, do I have to hide it from the facility? I mean, how can I get support from my hospice? So we're still dealing with that around the country. So in the ideal situation, you have a warm, loving family. They totally agree with you. They all fly in. They sit around your beds. You know, it's easy. It's as easy to romanticize it as it is being a hospice volunteer. For the most part, if you're really well-educated, then it's not going to freak you out if somebody doesn't die for three or four hours instead of the five minutes you see, you know, you hear about. You're usually, hopefully, very well-versed. I think one of the hardest parts for many families is deciding things like who's going to mix the meds. It's a ritual. Some families want to do it. Some families just can't believe they're going to put the meds in dad's mouth, you know. Um, they come up with some beautiful rituals for the most part. Um, the deaths seem to go relatively easy. If you're in hospice and a death doesn't work for some reason, you start throwing up the meds, you have some kind of reaction, you've got hospice doctors there who will come and treat you the way any other patient who's going through that kind of distress would be. You know? um, I mean, there are horror stories everywhere. But the thing I think about this is it's different than VSAID because um, you can say no right up until the time you take the meds. And people often do. They will say, I'm, you know, I mean, families are all prepared for Friday. And that is a big deal, too. This is the only thing you know Friday at noon. For some people, it's really comforting. For other people, it's really uncomfortable to, to actually know exactly when somebody's going to die. Um, so then there's a question I do in my workshops, too, though. Do you want to know? Would you want to know when you were going to die, Diane? Would you want to know? I'm going to have to sit with that one. I don't think I do. Like at this moment, I don't want to know. But I could see that changing, right? So much depends on our health and our um, our sense of stability and our families. Like, where, you know, are we leaving things incomplete or are we feeling a completed life, right? Exactly. What, what, what resources do people have? I mean, let's rattle off some resources for people. One is your website, which is practically-dying. Dot com. Yep. Um, we talked about the completed life.com. What others would you so put? People? There are three that are really important. Well, first, let me say we are just get on my web page or and sign up for my mailing list, but put in there specifically if you want to know about MAID, because I am just now organizing the End of Life Options Colorado group. So this will be a state group where anybody can come looking for information. Hopefully at some point we will have volunteers who can go out and sit with you and answer questions and tell you what a doula can do to help. We have doulas who are involved in this too, who can, um, in some states, they actually sit with the family and help with the meds. You know, I mean, really make sure that the people are um, comfortable ahead of time and that they're not alone in the house. For some people, it's just too much. So this group is starting now. We are going to be incredible. So get on that list. Great. Um, there are two national advocacy groups, Compassion and Choices. Their website actually 
has a Colorado page that tells you how many people <clears throat> have used the meds and um, talks a lot about our law. Good. So compassion and choices. Compassion yep. and choices. The other one is the Death with Dignity National Center. And they both will give you lots of information about the laws, what's going on around the country. We've had two lawsuits in the last couple of years to change the laws, which are, are stunningly wonderful. Um, and then there's a third group that's called the uh, American Clinicians Academy for Medical Aid and Dying. So it's ACA. M-A-I-D dot org. And this is a group of doctors and clinicians who got together and said, hey, we're not advocating that you use this, but if you do, we want to make sure it goes smoothly. They're the ones that mess a lot with the formulas and try to improve them and talk about what happens with their patients when they do this and that. They have incredible, all three of them have incredible resources. The, the Academy website actually has like a half an hour video that shows you the day of what happens, what they should be asking about and what the family should be doing. And that should, but you know, what they can do. Yeah. Um, information, so those, information to be had and hard questions to ask, which seems key. Yeah. So I would say those three are the main national ones. My website's in the process of being redone, but the state organization that we're, is we're going to be the ones to call in Colorado. And you can, I mean, you can get a hold of me now. We have five of us, a physician and uh, three other board members. We're, we're starting to operate, but we're, our website's on the way up and we just got our 501c3 and we are totally accepting donations because as I say to people, the baby's been born, but we have no diapers or college fund. So please, if you're interested, get a hold of me. Any donations will help. We're going to be totally volunteer run. Fantastic. That Those are going to be terrific resources for Colorado. And I think you've put out a lot for people beyond um, Colorado as well. I think it's interesting that when we think about like the right to die states, um, so to speak, again, language, how do we feel about that statement? Um, you know, Washington and Oregon really come to mind, but it is really powerful that 10 states have approved this kind of legislation. And I think um, Kim and I are going to have another conversation at some point about advocacy, because I think this is a really interesting point that she and I were talking about before we started recording. What does it mean to advocate? What does it mean to educate um, the community, legislatures, the general public, individuals? These, I think these kinds of topics of sort of what are our rights, you know, I think Americans are interesting because I think if you ask most people on any side of a political spectrum, people believe in individual choice for the most part, but then they get cranky when individual choices don't go with what they think should be <laughs> individual choices, right? But yeah. there is this yeah. umbrella that is people should be able to choose. And I think uh, end of life is just one of those places where we're going to see more and more about how, what are the choices and how do we make choices and what, um, what do families and individuals and systems want and support? You know, you just brought up something that most people don't understand. And that is that this is all about life choice. So even though end of life wasn't a huge topic in, in all the politics, the road, road, wait, you know, the, I can't even remember Ray versus wall. Wait, I can't get the words right. You know what I'm saying? Roe. Roe v. Wade. Um, yeah. The, the idea that that came up is again about choice around life. So we in my field are watching those kinds of things carefully because they're leading into things like, I mean, we're asking questions. What's brain death? You know, I mean, 
So all of it is affected. And most people don't understand that. This isn't just about end of life. This is about choices. I think that's really true and and very personal choices, right? About, yeah, from the spectrum, from pregnancy to the spectrum of death. I, I think they're very personal choices and and we don't all agree, but I do see this thread of, of the U.S. culture tending to say people get to choose, but then we get all muddied down in the details of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay, so I'm going to vote for a tri- I don't want to see a president anymore. I think we need a triumvirate, two women and a man. And we use that kind of a thinking process to change our politics because we're never going to get out of this black and white back and forth thing. And yeah. unfortunately, because the religious right has gotten involved in the politics of the Republican Party, we no longer have that separation of church and state. And until we get that straightened out, we're just not going to make, none of it's going to make sense for very long. Right, right. And then I think it's complicated. I think both ends, both extremes don't make a lot of space for any middle ground. And I, I always think, yeah. well, well, nobody gets to legislate what can be said and not said, and nobody gets to, but yeah, here's the, herein lies the dilemma, right? Exactly. So, well, thank you so much, Kim. I just think this is a really, really interesting conversation about, about choice and about VSET and about MAID and palliative sedation. And I thank you for your time and your expertise. Mm-hmm. Thanks. This is fun. It's fun to talk about. With only a small, weird little group of people, of which you are one, it's fun. So hopefully we'll we'll get, it'll be fun enough that at some point everybody will be more fascinated than afraid. I love that. More fascinated than afraid. That's That's really good. Thanks so much, Kim. Yeah. Take good care. You've been listening to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. You can find out more about my work at bestlifebestdeath.com. You can find out about the work Kim does at practicallydying.com with a dash in the middle, practically-dying.com. Thanks so much, Kim.